Welcome to Making of a Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to study for his comprehensive exams. And I must have started this episode about five or six different times because I'm worried about sounding, well, I don't know, pretentious? Uh, Because today I'm not going to be talking about a particular historical theme or an event or even a set of books like I usually do, but I'm going to be talking about uh, a big question, a deep question. Now, there's a ton of these deep questions that we all are forced to confront in our lives. For me, these deep questions have an unhappy combination of two factors. Uh, First, there's no good answers for them yet. We haven't found a kind of convincing way to answer the questions that satisfies not everybody, but at least most reasonable people. The second thing that distinguishes these deep big, deep questions, is that we're forced to answer them. Um, They're the price of admission for particular kinds of activities, for particular kinds of thinking about things. And so these deep questions are questions that demand us to answer them, but have no good answers, that leave us kind of constantly scratching our heads. Answers that we build our life around, but that, you know, never necessarily have an answer that will satisfy us if we remain curious. Um, Of course, there's tons of these, you know, deep five-in-the-morning conversation questions that that trouble us. What should I do with my life? Why are we here? Is art any good? Uh, You know, is there a reason for men and women to stay together? I'm going to talk about one question that troubles historians in particular. And it goes by the really boring name of uh, structure versus agency. But I want to restate it to something that will have a little bit more impact for non-academics. Can people make a difference? Or how much difference do people make? And I mean, a more egotistical way of saying it, something that will chime more with our personal narratives. Do we make a difference? Can we make a difference? You know, I uh, read the newspaper in the morning with my cup of coffee because I think that I guess I need to be scared (laughs) to get woken up. Uh, And these days the news is really troubling. But I'm faced by this question every single time I read the news because I see horrible things that I disagree with vehemently. And also I see patterns in these news events that the people who I'm reading do not themselves see. I see potential solutions for them, but because they're, you know, these big, gigantic structural problems, I feel completely powerless to stop them. I have no ability to do anything about these big events except for read about them, except for understand them. If I was going to do something about it, it would be like, you know, an ant trying to stop a Chevy. But I'm sure that there are people out there who do have the potential to change the course of events. But I'm not sure that they know who they are. So the old style heroic history, the old political history that dominated, uh, you know, stuff until like the 1950s or so, sure did think that individuals made a big difference. It followed politicians and generals and scientists and philosophers as they made new paths towards greatness. You know, imagine the kinds of history that you learned about the Roman Empire from like the History Channel. The people you learn about, and you learn about a lot of people, are ambitious, mainly men. 
Augustus Caesar, Julius Caesar, Tiberius, all these kinds of people. These are the people who make history for the old kinds of historians. And it's the sort of history that America was founded upon, actually. When you look at the founders of the American Republic, they're concerned about despotism. When they make the laws of this country, they're concerned about another Caesar. They're not worried about class. They're not worried about, you know, uh, how workers are going to make a living. They're worried about ambitious generals and ambitious politicians, you know, taking the reins of power of the state for their own fame. Because for them, history wasn't moved by class or the workers or the environment. For them, history was moved by individuals, particularly by powerful individuals whose thirst for fame and ambition and glory were really what mattered. But the modern world that we live in, that arose around the same time as those American revolutionaries were daydreaming about, you know, Caesar, the modern world pokes some holes in this idea of the importance of the individual. Remember all the way back in like episode two or three, when we talked about the great suicide controversy in the 19th century? Well, to remind you guys, in the early 19th century, London and Paris were in a kind of war of letters about which country had the most suicides. And it was a problem because there wasn't enough good statistics to say what the suicide rate was in each city. Well, when they did finally figure out the suicide rate in each city, there was something really surprising. Suicide rates had kind of strict patterns. They stayed the same year after year after year, with only very minor variations. For us, this is something that's completely normal. We live in a world of statistics. We live in a world of regularity, where we understand that a rate like the number of uh, people who are shot by police in the US every year is something that describes our social reality, something that we can use to discuss what politics is, something that we can do stuff to, that we can change stuff, that we, through some sort of action, can change this rate of police homicide. And this was disturbing for people in the 19th century because it suggested that there's this incredibly personal decision, this decision to end your own life that is governed by invisible, regular laws. And I mean, it's even worse because suicide seems so random. It seems so particular. It seems odd to suggest that there's a magic social law that says that every year 12 people out of a thousand or whatever in Paris should decide, you know, because they're jilted from their lover, because they got fired from the telegraph office, to jump off a bridge or take a dose of laudanum or slit their wrists or fire a gun at their heads. It seems so weird that this number, this statistic should appear year after year after year. And it suggests that there's social laws that exist for almost everything, for falling in love, for dying, for starting a new job, for which friends will betray you, for which grad students will pass their comprehensive exams. And what's even worse is that we realize that there's a bunch of factors that with regularity can influence these social facts, can influence these statistics. 
As cities get denser, we will expect the suicide rate to change. As people get more educated, they marry later. As people get richer, they start to work less. These kinds of social regularities, these kinds of social laws opened up a world for technocrats, for experts to try to influence these laws, to try to gain a handle on these disruptive and difficult social dynamics. This stuff is the stuff we call structure. And academically right now, structure, not individuals, are all the rage. Um, Marx, of course, thought that structure, particularly economic structure, was the most important thing in understanding how history moved forward. For him, history was always the story of uh, economically defined groups struggling with one another for political preeminence. This is what you know dialectical materialism means. There's a struggle there. That's the dialectic. There's things that are opposing one another, and this dialectic is materialistic. It's based on you know how people are getting food out of the ground and exchanging this food. And so for him, the failure of bourgeois political economists to understand the reality of capitalism was because they were bourgeois, because they lived in nice homes and valued their daughters playing piano and went to the opera. That was the reason why they could not understand political economy. This structure that they were enmeshed in, the institutions that they went in, the people who paid the money, the uh, friends that they hung out with, that constrained their thinking. Structure trumps agency. The same way that a Marxist might claim that me, a very bourgeois person, can never really understand uh, the failures of the capitalistic system because I benefit from it. Now, this strain of thought continues with a bunch of different uh, emphases. Uh, Foucault, who, you know, for the past 20, 30, 40 years is like the most cutting edge thinker in humanities. That was irony. Um, Foucault goes one step further and shows how the institutions of social life uh, prisons, schools, hospitals, governments, census bureaus, work to change the way that we picture ourselves. That the structure doesn't just, you know, trump agency, but the structure creates agency. The very sense of what we as individuals think matter, what I as a person believe makes my values, is actually created by politically motivated institutions who work on us at all times, invisibly and persistently. And I mean, you don't even need to be a leftist to be, you know, big on structure. All those champions of Western civilization uh, like who follow Samuel Huntington and thinking that the next big conflicts are going to be around culture, for them, there are these invisible, you know, cultural influences that determine whether or not a person is civilized. And these are so powerful and potent that they will determine not just individual reaction, not just, you know, the popularity of particular pop songs, but the course of world history. Um, economists, too, I mean, this might be a little bit perverse, but economists, too, we can understand them as being masters of structure rather than individual agency, because for economists, the big argument is, is that for every single individual, we are influenced by the same kinds of global cost-benefit analyses that we can understand, you know, without context. That in complicated ways, we're just 
machines for calculating profit, that individuals for all, all their particularity and all their hand-wringing about morality are just, you know, big economic boxes that are seeking to maximize their utility. Of course, there are some people who argue for agency. My favorite uh, is Bruno Latour, who's probably one of the weirdest thinkers that I've read for uh, these comprehensive exams, and also uh, my favorite. Uh, if I had to you know, hold a book up in, in my Facebook profile picture and say, this book is what I believe, it would be Latour's Reassembling the Social, which is not to say I understand it. Um, but for Latour, he argues that it's agency all the way up that there is no such thing as structure. There are no ghostly things like classes or you know, economic tendencies or nations that, that have some sort of extra agental property to control people. Instead, what you have are rich connections between agents. Now, what makes Latour really weird is that for him, this network of agents isn't just people, this network of agents are institutions, books, objects, diseases. And so he has this complicated, uh, you know, very granular network of how things move through it. But the problem with this, of course, is that it's hard to imagine these networks of, you know, uh, uh, minute social interactions building up to the kinds of social regularities that social sciences were developed to explain. And you can see this tension over and over again in my own work, in that central problem that I have between my interest in cultural history, in people, in fun, and my interest in environmental history, in the Industrial Revolution, and coal. For me, I can't decide whether the important thing about the modern world is the fact that people got together in clubs and coffee houses and magazines and made new kinds of social organization in which they could follow their individual passions in new ways, which thus made new kinds of, you know, knowledge and new kinds of Pearson, new kinds of social organization. I can't decide whether that matters or whether all that matters is that in Britain, in the 18th and 19th centuries, people got a lot of coal. Now, I wanted to talk about this today because as I was going to bed last night and I was, as I was kind of, you know, mentally going through my reading for the day, I had a weird thought. I thought maybe this tension between structure and agency itself has a history. Maybe there are particular times when individuals have more power over the system. Maybe there's particular structures that enable agents in their weird and individual ways to have more power. So I want to talk about a couple people whose biographies just kind of struck me uh, as to how important they are in world history and how kind of irreplaceable they are. I mean, of course, uh, we can start off with politics because for politics, it seems really clear that the personality of particular leaders matters a ton. Um, the obvious person, of course, is Hitler, whose idiosyncratic beliefs changed, obviously, the course of world history. Uh, we can also see this with the election of Donald Trump, which uh, has presented a kind of big problem to the uh, commentary writing uh, uh, elites who, whose you know, op-eds I read every day. Because for them, they know that the election of Donald Trump is something new. It marks a new kind of era. And what do we do when we see something new? We try to explain it. But it doesn't seem like there's a lot of good structural causes for Trump's election. I mean, Trump didn't win by that much of a electoral college vote, and he lost the popular vote. 
And so we have trouble explaining how he actually won. We want to point to a bunch of different things. And of course, this is part of uh, uh, massive disagreements on the left, whether the left failed uh, to reach out for an economic message or whether the left failed uh, to double down on its message of inclusiveness and diversity. But it's clear from this that the personality of Donald Trump, the person who he is, matters a lot. And that in some way, that overcomes structure. Now, I want to move away from the obvious examples in politics towards less obvious examples in technology. So I'm going to start with the guy whose biography made me uh, think about this, Alexander von Humboldt. Uh, he was a Prussian naturalist in the 18th and 19th centuries, a romantic. Uh, and I learned about him because in the first years of the 19th century, he went on this five-year trip to South America uh, to look at the transit of Mercury. Um, this is not just a pleasure trip. He spent the entire time looking at the natural world, taking readings, uh, marking how big the, the uh, tides were at particular coasts, uh, figuring out what kinds of soil were in particular places, looking at the geology of the Andes, measuring you know, the heights of mountains, talking to people, looking at fabrics and history, and just sucking in all of the information that he possibly could. And he was a good naturalist. And one of the things that he discovered on his trip through South America was on the coast of Peru. There are all these islands off the coast of Peru uh, that were glittering white. And he saw these boats coming in from the islands, and he saw the stuff that people were unloading from these boats, and they were, was nasty and smelly, and it made him sneeze a lot, and he asked what it was. And it was bird shit. Guano. Why are people taking guano from islands? Well, they used it as fertilizer. And von Humboldt took a sample of this, and he took it back with him to Germany, to Prussia, when he returned. And he handed out some samples to his friends who investigated it chemically. They discovered that it was incredibly high in nitrogen. And this led them to realize that fertilizer, which people had known about for a long time, was important because it gave nitrogen to the soil. When you put poop or uh, you know, a carcass, or fish meal, or guano in the ground, what it was doing was it was providing nitrogen, nitrogen compounds that plants needed to grow. And this pushed two gigantic developments. First, starting in the 1840s, it pushed a worldwide trade in guano, which led in turn to the Guano Islands being depleted and even a gigantic international war uh, over uh, which countries got to command these Guano Islands. And Guano was important because for islands and countries that had depleted its, their soil, you could just put guano on it and it would restore it to its previous agricultural fertility. Uh, the island of St. Helena, the island where Napoleon died, was one of the first islands in the Atlantic settled by Europeans. And like most islands uh, settled early by the Europeans, it was destroyed ecologically very quickly because people didn't know what to do. You know, they stripped it of all of its trees so that they could fix its boats. Uh, they introduced, you know, dogs and rats, which destroyed the local uh, climate. You know, it was, it was a barren wasteland. But these early guano experimenters started to grow crops with guano, and the crops grew. They turned a barren rock into a fertile island. The second big move was understanding that 
what guano provided, what fertilizer provided, what plants needed was nitrogen. Scientists in the 19th century started to look for ways of producing artificial nitrogen. And this led uh, to the creation of nitrogen-based artificial fertilizers, uh, which is the so-called modern green revolution, which is one of the reasons why we have so many people in the world. We do not need to rely as human beings anymore on the natural nitrogen cycle. We are able to create nitrogen out of fossil fuels, out of energy. And this creation of nitrogen allows us to reach populations of 7, 8 billion. When 100 years ago, before this happened, populations were at like 2 billion. So this discovery, this one discovery by Alexander von Humboldt of native peoples using guano, and his ability to put this discovery into circulations of particular kinds of knowledge that then were you know, taken up by industrialists, this one discovery changed the world more than maybe anything else, created billions of people. And in addition to that, I mean, he studied ecology, volcanoes, he drew birds and ma mountains and, and drew maps. And he was friends with Simon Bolivar and made schemes for, you know, setting up educational institutions in, in Latin America that would train up new generations of technocrats. Now, if you were a structural person, you'd say, look, Brendan, this is not particularly important. There would have been another Alexander von Humboldt. There would have been another person who recognized uh, that indigenous uses of guano uh, were something that could be exported to the rest of the world. But that doesn't seem satisfying. It seems like there's something unique, something that happens with Alexander von Humboldt on that Peruvian shore that, that determines the course of history. That if he would have woken up on the wrong side of the bed, or if he would have been hung over, or if he would have been more interested in poetry on that particular day, we would have six billion less people on Earth. Another, you know, more common example of this is... Uh, uh, Thomas Edison, who uh, was such a striver that he worked constantly, tirelessly, uh, to create new forms of electrical technology. Uh, and in doing so, he, he's filed more than a thousand patents with the U.S. Patent Office. And through this, he created not just the electric light bulbs, but also the kind of electrical infrastructure that we have today. And it's really unclear how you would get not only the light bulb, but the entire electrical infrastructure without a Thomas Edison. Um, but for every single story like that, where it seems like there's a unique person of utmost importance for the course of world history, you get other weirder stories. Um, one of the stories that I, I found out in, in researching this is that the, there were two patents for the telephone filed within hours of one another. Uh, by Bell and a guy named Gray, Gray. This is insane to me. People, two men working independently on this new technology um, that itself would change the world. You know, having their, their inspiration, ha having their big ideas, working through their problems, all independently, all alone. This would seem to be the most individual of acts. This would seem to be the kind of process that would be the most prone to uh, small individual changes of fate. You get sick and your you know, course of, of research gets held back for a week. You have a wrong idea and you, you know, pursue a unprofitable course of research. Your wife is, is leaving you and so you get emotionally distraught. But despite all of these potentials for variation, these two men filed very similar patents within hours of one another. 
They came to the same idea within hours of one another. And you might say, look, that is just chance. That's just serendipity. That's the law of large numbers. Of course, if you have hundreds of inventors working on hundreds of ideas, two of them would have the same idea at the same time. But similarly, uh, there's countless stories of people coming up with inventions spontaneously around the world. Uh, in synthesizing the dye, uh, alizarin, one of the first victories of organic chemistry, uh, in, in that it made this usable, reproducible substance through looking at coal tar derivatives, it was discovered within 24 hours in both German chemical firms and British chemical firms, completely independently of one another. And this leaves me lost with this big question. It leaves me lost as to the answer of what are we? How unique are we as un individuals? Me, how unique am I? I'm sitting here, a wannabe historian, striving for my own you know, font of inventiveness, striving for my own form of genius, recording a podcast, studying for my exams, trying to put together these difficult ideas that to me are unique, troubling, interesting. And I know that there must be a few dozen people like me, a few hundred people like me, also studying for their exams, also working through these problems, also recording their podcasts, also maybe even with curly hair, also maybe into Andrew Bird and they might be giants, also with tastes for small pickled peppers. It, it seems inevitable that I, in all of my individuality, become a representative of a type that no matter my good ideas, they are created by the structure of society around me. That I am simply a cookie cutter made by this vast modern capitalistic machine. Or that I'm not a cookie cutter, that, that my personal agency, my personal decisions through this structure means that I am more than just the economics and culture and society that surround me. And I don't know where to fall on this. I'm stuck, which is something that I personally come to when I have a lot of big decisions, I get stuck between both sides of the big questions. But I want to emphasize something about this feeling, this feeling of being both invisible and of being performing on stage, this feeling of being unique, but also of being influenced by large, unseen, uncaring, massive forces. This is one of those feelings that becomes much more common with urban modernity. We, when we are living in cities, when we become city people, we are in a crowd. We are seen. And we are also invisible. We're a face in the crowd. And we can try, if we want to, to stand out. We can try to buy, you know, a nice hat or a jaunty coat. But we also know that there's a chance that there will be somebody else in that crowd wearing the same coat, looking across at us. Thanks very much for listening to Making of a Historian today. I have to thank, as always, Jonathan Lear for the music and Duncan Barton for the image. If you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes, share us on Reddit, uh, tweet about us using the hashtag tripod, uh, email me a heartfelt letter about why you love the show and it's changed your life, email me a heartfelt letter about why I'm an idiot. Uh, do all of these things that you do with the social media that you like. I am a very, very small podcast. I think that my listenership is in the dozens if I'm lucky. If you reach out to me, it would mean a lot. Thanks very much for listening, and I will see you tomorrow.